You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. Okay, so here we are, week seven. We're motoring through. You're past the halfway point. Congratulations. Of course, your reward was you had a really difficult week in the text, so sorry about that. Uh, If you thought that last week was a hard week, we saw that this week things just continue. The elevator continues to go down, so to speak. Um, We saw last week that David was uh, unfaithful to God, certainly, in his his actions toward Bathsheba, or we might say against Bathsheba. And we're going to see this week the fallout of that. One of the most chilling principles of parenting is that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, Not only that, but that more is caught than taught. And I think that's what we're going to see playing out this week. I I know that it is. And uh, one of the things that we were left with at the end of last week was this prophecy that is spoken through uh, Nathan by God to David. And it was in 2 Samuel 12, 10 through 12. And it's this prophecy that we're going to see come to fulfillment over the remaining weeks of the study. So I'm going to read it to you. Um, And it says in verse 10 of chapter 12, it says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So we have a prophecy that the sword will never depart from the house of David. And indeed, we're going to see that begin to come to fulfillment this week. Verse 11 of chapter 12 says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you, out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now, um, one of the things that we try to school you in, one of the tools that we try to give to you is to challenge you to ask good questions of the text. And I had a lot to cover last week, and I was motoring through, and you guys did not let me off the hook on this. And I'm really glad, but I also was really challenged because I got more than one email asking the question that I knew as soon as I got done teaching last week, you were probably going to ask. So on the one hand, I'm so excited that you knew that this was a good question to ask. And on the other hand, I'm like, great, now I have to actually answer it. And the question was, does God not care about these wives? Like, why is God giving these wives into the hands of David's enemies? And in fact, it was was in that whole section of the text where God said, I gave and I gave and I gave, and you took and you took and you took, and so now I will take. If you remember that from last week, and one of the things that he talks about are these wives. And so I want you to pay attention because there's a literary thing that is going on there. First of all, there's an irony that's being built into the text. And we've had this tension all the way throughout the book of the king who will take, the king who is like the other nations will take and will take and will take. And so there is just some, um, some expressive language in that passage that is meant to build the irony for you. But also when God says that he is going to take these wives... Um, what he's and that he gave him these wives, what is he really saying? He's saying, I have allowed these things. I sat back and I allowed these things to take place because we know that God is not for polygamy. In fact, we're going to see this week just how not for polygamy he is in the way that things begin to play out within David's family. But what is he saying? He's saying, I allowed for this to come to pass, and now guess what's going to happen? I'm going to allow for a lot of other things to come to pass that are consequences of your actions. So if you noticed in the text this week, did you hear God speaking? 
Was he in the text, so to speak? Now, we know that he's everywhere present, but in the text this week, as we walk through these events of violence, we do not hear the voice of the Lord. We do not hear the presence of the Lord spoken of, and that's actually a common thing that we see. If you have ever studied the story of the rape of Dina in Genesis, it's the same thing. You've had God in the narrative for chapters, and then for the portion of those chapters, we stop hearing the voice of God. And what is that supposed to communicate to us? How will God give David's wives into the hands of his enemy? By doing nothing. By simply standing back. How does God harden Pharaoh's heart in Exodus? By doing nothing. By turning him over, if you will, to his own ways and ends. So, It's a tough thing still. I can't soften for you the fact that these are real human lives who are the casualties. But remember that as we've talked about last week, the reason that these women will endure suffering is because of David's sin. David is where we trace the guilt. So we're going to watch this prophecy continue to come to fulfillment. Let's turn to chapter 13 because what I want you to see in this week is that we will have sons of David, two sons of David specifically, who are going to cause us to long in a way that perhaps we haven't before for the true son of David to come. The literal sons of David are going to be colossal failures. You may remember, I'm sure you remember, that last week we looked at the story of David who sinned against Bathsheba, sexual sin against Bathsheba, and what else? Murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. So should we be surprised to find this week the amplification of both of those sins in the lives of his sons? So chapter 13 Picking up in verse 1, it says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, we're entering into one of the tenderest stories in all of the Bible. And I know that this is a story that for many people is going to be more personal than any of us would ever wish. And so I just want you to know that we see you, and we're here with you in this, and we understand how hard this is. In fact, I was trying to think if I'd ever heard anyone teach this story in the entirety of my time in the church, and I don't think that I have. I had some mixed feelings about that as we're going through a study, a line-by-line study of the book of Samuel. One of the options that we do not have is to skip over stories like this. And I'm glad. I'm glad. Because when we skip over stories like this, do you know what we communicate to people for whom this is your story? We ought not to speak of those things. We should keep that silent. I was talking to my daughters this week, they're in college, and um, over the course of their time there, they have shared with me stories of um, friends or acquaintances who have come forward and told stories of sexual assault. My daughters are just so, just destroyed by these stories, it's not their story, and I'll tell you what, it's not my story either, so it's even hard for me to teach this story because it feels almost like I don't have permission because I haven't lived it. My daughters would tell me these stories, and they'd say, we don't know what to do. We don't know how you fix this. 
You know what I said to them? I said, you know what? 30 years ago when I was in college, no one was telling these stories to each other. So I thank God that in their generation, these stories are spoken of. And I pray that a generation from now, we might do better at bringing them to justice. This story tonight is an opportunity for us to think whether we are a victim or whether we are a bystander of how we might enter into these stories, what we might do, how we might think about them as the people of God. So let's look at the story of Tamar. And i got to warn you, this is the second time I've taught this today, and I was an absolute blubbering wreck this morning. I sat here and completely desiccated myself in front of a room full of women, and I'm probably going to do it again. So here we go. So in verse 1, first we meet the name Absalom. And I think it's important for us to keep in view the literary structure of what we're going to be talking about because this is a room full of women. And this is a story about Tamar, but it's a story about Tamar that is going to help us understand the story of Absalom. And that's what the text is introducing here. It does not say now Tamar. It says now Absalom. So we're meant to take Tamar's story and ask, how does it shape our understanding of the story of Absalom, which is not to diminish her importance, but simply to show how it fits in the text. So it says, Absalom, David's son. Now, if you were paying attention to earlier uh, mentions of David's family, Absalom is actually the third son born to David. And he is born to David of his fourth wife, Makah, okay? And then we have Amnon, and Amnon is actually David's firstborn son. He is the firstborn son born to him of his wife, Ahinoam. And so Tamar is the sister of Absalom. She's the sister um, of Absalom born to David's fourth wife. Clear as mud, right? So it says, after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So Amnon is Tamar's half-brother. Verse 2 says, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So I got to that phrase, do anything to her, and I really wanted it to say something different. So I started looking it up in different translations, and I was not rewarded. The intent is there. He already sees her as an, objectifica- as an objectification, an object of his lust. So even when it says that Amnon loves her, we know because we've read further along that the nature of his love is actually lust, Right? He intends to do something to her, but he can't figure out how that can happen because she is a virgin, and that means that she would have been kept with the other virgin daughters of the king. It wasn't like they just got to run around and do whatever they wanted because they were very uh, treasured in the household. And so he doesn't have easy access to her. He can't be alone with her. Now, Leviticus 18.11, you had a chance in your homework this week to look at some of these Levitical laws that governed some of the issues that we came up against in the lesson this week. Leviticus 18.11 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. Amnon would know this. He would know that of all women, this woman in particular is forbidden but he already seems intent that he would do something to her. Verse 3, But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, but he's not just a friend, is he? Who is he? He's David's cousin. I'm sorry, he's Amnon's cousin. 
a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. Oh, that's an interesting word that's mentioned there. What is that supposed to make us think of? Snakes. See, you know, you've been in the study long enough, you know, right? It's another serpent. It's another serpent in the text. He's a very crafty man, and he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And notice how uh, Jonadab is going to kind of duck in and out of the story this week. Notice how he addresses his friend. He doesn't say, hey, buddy, or he doesn't say, hey, Amnon. How does he address him? He says, oh, son of the king. So there's flattery in there, but there's something else. You know who you are? You're the son of the king. Do you know what you should have? Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Take what you want. Did God really say O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Verse 5, Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please tell my sister Tamar to come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. This is interesting because he's request, he's making a very specific request, and it's the kind of thing that's completely unnecessary, right? Because obviously there were servants who could have fed him, and also he's a grown man. He could have helped himself to whatever food that he needed, and yet he comes up with this fairly specific and elaborate request, and he asks daddy for it. He asks daddy for it. And just the fact that he would ask this kind of a request, and as we're going to see, David is going to grant it, is telling us something about David's relationships with his sons. David is an indulgent father. He is an indulgent father. Amnon fully expects that David will do as he has asked, and he is not disappointed Verse 7, then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house when he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. So notice Tamar's behavior here, immediate obedience without question, trust. Could she have said no? We don't know. But already you can see the parallel building that she is being sent as Bathsheba was sent as a lamb to the slaughter. Verse, halfway through verse 9. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. And here we begin to see this heavy emphasis on the sibling language. Verse 11, but when she brought them near him to eat, he what? He took. He took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? 
And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Watch what is going on with the words that are chosen in this passage. First of all, notice her initial appeal is to the law of God. What does she say? She says, such a thing is not done in Israel. She knows the law. She knows what pleases the Lord. You remember when we saw Bathsheba initially, what was she doing? She was cleansing herself of her impurity. She was an observer of the law. And what is, what is the second thing to which Tamar appeals in her panic? She says, don't do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? Don't do this before God. And then what? Don't do this to me. And then thirdly, and as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. So we've seen this outrageous word repeated twice, and it literally means godless. Do not do this godless thing. You would be as one of the outrageous, the godless fools in Israel. And that word fool, do you remember someone in the text earlier back in 1 Samuel whose name meant fool? Nabal. That's the word that we see here. Only this week in the commentaries, I learned that that word doesn't just mean a fool. It means a perverted and sick person. kind of changes the way we look back on Abigail's story a little to know that that's the man she was living with, doesn't it? As for you, you would be as one of the godless, perverted people in Israel. So what does she say? Essentially, she states a principle that we know to be true. That if you hate the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength... You will hate your neighbor as you hate yourself. And then she finally says in a moment of complete desperation, Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She doesn't actually know if this would be true or not, because marriage to him would have been illegal. But what is she doing? She's biding for time. She's doing anything she can to try to prevent what will surely happen because he does not listen to her. And the text says, being stronger than she, he violated her. He is certainly stronger, and he knows it. He is physically stronger, and he is socially stronger. He is culturally stronger. He holds every card to be able to commit the crime and get away with it. Verse 15, we see how people react when they consume something in lust. It says, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. What does she know? She knows that he will send her away and he will let the blame lie on her. But he would not listen to her. A second repetition. Verse 17, he called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. 
what the text actually says, this woman is not actually in the original language, it's been added in for us. The literal reading is, get this out of here. The sense of his words is, take out the trash and bolt the door after her. Why bolt the door? Because in bolting the door, it would send a signal to everyone else in the household that she was the one who initiated contact. Verse 18, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. Interesting that this robe is mentioned, and we'll see what she does with it in just a minute. But have you ever heard this long robe with sleeves mentioned anywhere else in the Bible? It's a, it's, a, it's a term that is not always translated the same way. The other way that this term is translated is, can you guess? A coat of many colors. It's a sign of favor and of honor. It says, so his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, thus giving the appearance that she is the aggressor, that she is the initiator. We have the classic scenario of victim blaming. Verse 19, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. I want you to remember those images. We're going to see those come back a little later. So ashes on her head, a torn robe, lays her hand on her head, goes away crying. These visible signs of mourning, loud mourning. And so Absalom hears. Look at verse 20. It says, And her brother Absalom said to her, What happened to you? Is that what Absalom says? No. It says, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Apparently, Amnon's desire for her was not a secret to anyone. Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. The impulse behind Absalom's speech is the impulse that leads us to avoid even teaching this story in our churches. Let's not talk about it. Let's just slide it under the rug because it's just going to make people feel uncomfortable. It's just going to make them feel like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. So he says, do not take this to heart. Now, we know that he's going to avenge this act, but here's the problem. If Amnon is the firstborn son of David and he is the thirdborn son of David, what do you suppose is his motive for killing Amnon? Probably has more to do with a claim to the throne. So he says, let's just hush this up. Verse 21, we see David's response. Oh, no, before we get there, it says, So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. She lived a desolate woman. This term desolate, you've maybe seen it in other prophecies in the Old Testament regarding cities that lie desolate, that lie wasted. I want you to remember that image, too, because it's going to come back to us in a little bit. But she lives desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Why? Because what option is left to her? 
what active restoration is. She cannot tell her story. Her story's been swept under the rug, but it's obvious that something has happened that has removed the favor that culture bestowed on her because she was a virgin daughter of the king. And at least in the story of David and Bathsheba, David gave Bathsheba the belated protection of marriage. At least he did that. Or Bathsheba would have found herself in a similar situation. But here, not the son of David, no. Instead, her situation will be used as a bargaining chip in a vying for the throne. Let's see how David responds in verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. So he executed justice on his son Amnon. No. Did you read? Did you read this verse this week? Did you get to this verse and you get to the end of verse 21 and you're staring at that sentence and you're shouting at your Bible, do something. Do something. You're the king. Do something. Everybody seems to know what the dynamics were in your household. Do something but he does nothing. He does not act. He is so locked up because he feels that he has lost the moral ascendancy. Why? Because he sees in his son a further expression of his own sin. He who leveraged power for sex with Bathsheba now sees his son do something which we can certainly call rape. No one hesitates to call this act against Tamar rape. People may fiddle around with what they call the act that David did to Bathsheba, but it is obvious here with his son that the amplification of what happened in that story is occurring here. Notice how Absalom behaves. He bides his time. It says in verse 23, after two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all of the king's sons. And so I'm sure you hit this in the text and you were like, oh yeah, sheep shearers, that's great. <laughs> He's referring to, there's a festival that takes place, and so Absalom has been biding his time because if you look in verse 22, it says that he never addressed the issue, he just lets it rest because he wants to find the best opportunity, and now he finds it in this festival that's going to happen. And so he invites the king and all of his sons to come, and David says, you shouldn't trouble yourself. Don't go to all of that trouble. And so then Absalom says, okay, well then just let Amnon go with us. And David even says in verse 26, well, why should he go with you? Isn't that interesting? Like David is aware. He knows that the tension exists, but once again, he does not do anything to intervene, even though he does seem to sense that something might be amiss. And verse 27 says, but Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. And this is the pattern that we see, is that David's sons know if they press him, if they press him, if they press him, what will he do? He will indulge them. He will indulge them. And surely he does. And so along goes Amnon on the trip, and Absalom takes his chance and has him killed. Doesn't even do it himself. He has his servants do it, much as David has sent Joab to do a lot of his dirty work. 
And then a false report comes back to David saying that all of his sons have been struck down. And in verse 32, Jonadab reappears on the scene. Crafty Jonadab says in verse 32, But Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Interesting. Again, everybody seems to know everything that is at stake here. What's the deal with Jonadab? What's the deal with crafty Jonadab? Like, why does he come in here with this message for David at this time? Isn't it a little hard to know how to feel about him? Like, you're like, okay, he's back, and he's giving more um, bad advice and, 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 and telling the story from whatever angle he thinks that he needs to. Exactly whose side is he on? And what's the answer to that? He's on his own side. He's on his own side. He's just out to curry favor however he can. And so Amnon dies, and Absalom ends up fleeing to his grandpa in Geshur. And verse 37 says, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. And it's not exactly clear in that verse which son it is that he is mourning for. I think it's intentionally ambiguous. In verse 38, so Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Okay, that verse 39 is kind of a clunky one, isn't it? Like, did you read that and think, hmm? Okay, I don't know what's going on there. Well, I looked it up in several different translations, and in the CSB, I think we get a good sense for it. It says, King David longed to go to Absalom, for David had finished grieving over Amnon's death. He had finished grieving over Amnon's death. I don't know how you're feeling at this point in the story, but I'm personally not done being mad. Because there may have been some form of vigilante justice practiced for the sake of Tamar, but no one ever reached out to Tamar. And then the story just moves on. What do we see here with David? What does he do? He is, he is, um, he is, he is unable to do anything to keep his sons from their wickedness. He expresses deep anger about it, but he does not act to stop them from the things that they are doing. Who does that sound like? Do you remember all the way back in 1 Samuel? The wicked sons of Eli. Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons. And he keeps saying to them, you can't do these things that you've done anymore, but he doesn't ever act to stop them. And so now we see the king of Israel behaving much as Eli the priest did and doing nothing to intervene. Not only is he doing nothing to intervene, but he still seems to be under the power of his affection for these wicked children. So then we get to chapter 14, and we have sort of a colorful interlude where Joab figures out a way to make sure that Absalom gets brought back to King David. And how does he do it? Well, interestingly, he employs a technique which is mirroring what we saw last week when God sends Nathan to confront David about his sin, and he does it with a story. 
And so that's what we see Joab do here. He finds this woman of Tekoa, and he asks her to bring his words to David, and she does so in the form, essentially, of a parable. And she talks about how she has two sons and how the one son kills the other son, but should she lose both of her sons? And she basically sets up David to trap him in his words so that he will agree to bring Absalom back. Now, I don't want you to miss, there's a little, little nice detail here in verse 11 of chapter 14, where um, the woman says to David, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. And so as she's telling this parable about her two sons, who would be the interpretation of the son who she doesn't want to be killed? It would be Absalom, right? Okay, and so then notice David's response to her uh, hypothetical situation that he thinks is real. It says, and he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now, you're going to need to pay attention to hair, okay? Because we're going to see Absalom have good hair days and bad hair days, and it's going to be important that we pay attention. Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And what the, what the writer is doing is giving us a nice little irony that is set up for us, as we will see in just a minute. So if you go over to verse 23, you find out, so Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. So his 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 plan is successful. David agrees that the reasoning that was put out to him through the woman of Tekoa is good reasoning, although he does correctly identify that Joab is behind it. And so Joab goes and brings Absalom to Jerusalem. Verse 24 says, and the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. But of course, Absalom knows that if he just presses and presses, and presses, that his father will relent. But before we get to that, look at verse 25. We get to learn a little bit about Absalom. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Who does that sound like? Saul. Not just Saul either. You remember when Samuel went to see the sons of Jesse and he meets Eliab, and Eliab too is a tall, long, tall drink of water. So here we go. Here we go again. He's got all of the outward appearance that he needs, but what do we already know about him? The inside is rotten. Verse 26, and when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. Hmm. That's what you do when you cut your hair, right? <laughs> did you do any of the math on 200 shekels of hair on how much that would be? I did. Five pounds of hair. This dude grows five pounds of golden locks every year, and at the end of the year, not one hair falls to the ground because he cuts it off and he weighs it. Any stories you're thinking of right now about people who have long hair that they cut in the scriptures and how that didn't go great? Right. You should be thinking of those. Just put that in your pocket. You're going to need that as we move further into the story. And then we find out that there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. And Tamar was a beautiful woman. And listen, don't miss, miss the significance because his daughter Tamar would be the third Tamar that we find in the Bible. Okay? The first Tamar that you find in the Bible is in Genesis. She's the one who dressed as a prostitute. 
And, 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 and then Judah sleeps with her, and then Judah actually ends up by saying, she is more righteous than I am. And a lot of times you hear that story of that Tamar told as though she is um, the one who lures him. And, you know, it's all of the, the, the typical narratives that you would hear about that, like, why would she dress as a prostitute? Oh, my goodness. But the fact that David names a daughter Tamar and Absalom names a daughter Tamar should tell you that though we hear that story of Tamar in Genesis and we snicker or we think that she is a scandalous person, that she was in fact regarded just as Judah regarded her as someone to be held in honor. It's actually the way she's spoken of in the book of Ruth too. So... It says, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem, in verse 28, without coming into the king's presence. So basically, he's a waiter, right? He's been waiting patiently. He's three years in exile in Gesher. Before that, he waited two years to kill his brother. Now, two years waiting for access to David, but he doesn't like that. He's not really, he doesn't want to have to wait any longer because we all know what his end game is. And so he decides Joab is the best way that he can get access to his father. And so he sends him an email and Joab ignores it. And so he sends him a text and Joab ignores it. And so he does what we all do. He burns that son of a gun's field down. And then Joab's like, oh, I think I've got mail. <laughs> and what does he do? He gets him access because Absalom knows how to win friends and influence people. And notice the last statement at the end of verse 33. It says, so he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So David will kiss Absalom, and then guess what begins to happen immediately after that? Absalom begins to kiss all of the king's servants. Verse 15 says, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, after this Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Did that perk up your ears at all? I know that 1 Samuel chapter 8 was a long time ago, but we have referenced several times Samuel's now famous, he will take rant, where he talks about all the things that the king will take. Listen to the opening lines of Samuel's he will take rant in 1 Samuel 8, 11. Samuel said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. So what is going on here with Absalom? He knows that he looks like a king that the people would choose, and he knows that he can set up the trappings of the kind of king that the people would choose, and that's exactly what he's doing. And now he is going to build the kind of a following along credibility that the king the people would choose would do. And in verse 2, it says, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say, to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom what? Stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He will take. 
does not say so Absalom won the hearts of the men of Israel. What king won the hearts of the men of Israel? That would be his father, David, but Absalom steals their hearts. And how does he do it? He does it through flattery. He tells them what they want to hear. He does it through casting doubt on existing leadership. He plays on their fears. And then he does it through deceit. He basically makes promises to them that would occur if he were the one in power. You know what that sounds like to me? Oh, and then all the kissing? What does that sound like? Average campaign year in the United States? What's the problem? There are no campaign years in a monarchy. Absalom is clearly staging a coup. Verse 7 says, at the end of four years, oh, he's such a son of a gun. He's willing to invest four years in swaying people's opinions. So three years in exile, two years waiting for access, four years currying favor. Verse 7, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. What did we see happen in Hebron only recently? Oh, that's right. That is where David was crowned king. Verse 8, for your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. So what does he do? He deceitfully cloaks his plans in the language of religious practice. The king said to him, go in peace. Well, that's ironic. So it says, he arose and went to Hebron, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they were in their innocence and knew nothing. I mean, these guys are just like along for the ride. They don't even have any idea what's going on. And it said, but they apparently rally right behind him when things start to go south. Verse 12, it says, and while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Ahithophel the Gilanite, I mentioned him last week. Do you remember who I said that he was? He is the grandfather of Bathsheba. Seems like a pretty easy person to get to come over to your side. Hey, you know what happened to my sister? Hey, you remember what happened to your granddaughter? Why don't you come serve me? So then in verse 13, it says, And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Did you pay attention to that statement? The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Why? Because Absalom is a man after Israel's own heart. Absalom is the king of Israel's choosing. He is another Saul. Verse 14, then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. 
And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. So that little drop in there that he leaves 10 concubines to keep the house, and then we don't hear anything else. It feels like an odd detail, but it's part of this fulfillment that we're going to see happen as the story comes along. I will just say that leaving the 10 concubines to keep the house was not placing them in any particular danger. He would not have expected that they would suffer any harm or danger as a result of being left there. Okay, uh, and then in verse 18, we have a little military review, but it's an interesting kind of military review because everyone who is sort of reviewing by David, are they Israelites? Did you notice their names? Verse 18, it says, And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. And here comes one of my favorite names in all of the Bible. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. So what is he saying? Dude, you just got here. Like, you guys are just mercenaries. Like, you're people who have sworn allegiance to the God of Israel. But, I mean, get out of here. It's not going to go well. You should just kind of, like, save your own skin. And don't miss the irony here, especially when we hear Ittai the Gittite's response. Listen to it. Verse 21, it says, But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for life or for death, there also will your servant be. He is awesome. And he just got there. So don't miss the irony that a Canaanite who is freshly arrived speaks these words of fidelity to God and to David while David's own flesh and blood is in Hebron plotting to overthrow him. The one who should have been closest to him is against him. The one who should have abandoned him stays by his side. Verse 24, we find out that Abiathar and Zadok are bringing the ark along. They're like, well, if we're leaving, I guess we're going to need the furniture of God. And so they bring it out and they set it down and all the people pass out of the city. In verse 25, notice what David says. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. This is a sign of hope. This is a sign that David's heart is getting to the right place because God has turned him over to the consequences of his sin. Why? Because David knows that the Ark of the Covenant is nobody's good luck charm on a bad day. And then notice what he says. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Now this is a man after God's own heart. David is in a place of submission and penitence. 
He knows that the outcome of this lies in the hands of the Lord. And so then he sends Zadok and Abiathar back to Jerusalem with their sons and basically says, you can actually be of help to me within the city. And we're going to see him do the same thing with another of his servants when we get to the next section of the text, which is interesting because when things are going terribly for us and we know that life is kind of off the rails, do you know the verse that I see everybody put on Instagram? You have only to stand still and the Lord will fight for you. It's a good verse. But David is in just such a situation right now. And he is not standing still. He is taking measured and rational steps to ensure that there is a plan that might work. And so I I don't say that to come down on you for wanting to cling to a verse like that in a difficult time. But I do think it's worth asking in our times where we feel the most powerless and we know that the battle does depend upon the Lord, do we still take steps if we know that there are steps that we should take? Because that story in Exodus is a story where only a miraculous deliverance will save them. But sometimes we find ourselves with steps we can take and we should follow the example of David and take them. Look at verse 30. I hope this caught your attention. It says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Why is David weeping as he ascends the Mount of Olives? Well, he's weeping because he knows that he is going into exile again. But this time, the exile is his own doing. This time he will go into exile for his sins. But what about the son of David? Not these two lousy sons that we're reading about right now. What about the true son of David? In the Gospel of Luke, we see him also ascend the Mount of Olives, weeping as he goes. But he is not weeping because he is exiled for his own sin. He is weeping because he will be exiled for hours. So David is leaving. And a man named Hushai the Archite comes to him. And David says, if you will go back into the city, you can work with Zadok and Abiathar to bring me information. And then we have to just kind of press pause. We don't know yet what's going to happen. We know that David is a fugitive once again, but this time he is a fugitive from his own son as we see this fulfillment begin to take place of the prophecy from chapter 12. So we've seen the two sons of David who look more like the two sons of Eli than the two sons of the man of God's choosing. And we've seen the two sons of David who amplify the sins of their father. Whereas David acted against Bathsheba and murdered Uriah the Hittite, now he has a son who rapes and another son who murders his own brother. We have two sons of David who should cause us with every fiber of our being to long for the true son of David. Because the true son of David has an answer for the guilt of David. 
And he also has an answer for the shame of Tamar. What does she say? As for me, where can I carry my shame? You see, the cross of Christ, where the true son of David dies in our place, writes both the wrong we have done and the wrong that has been done to us. It is the place where the guilty lay down their guilt, and it is the place where the victim can lay down a shame that should never have been laid upon her in the first place. I want you to listen to the words of Isaiah 61. This is the prophecy that Jesus reads in the temple when he stands up and opens the scroll. I want you to think back to the images that we saw in the story of Tamar, and I want you to listen to these words that Jesus spoke and see if you hear anything. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long laid desolate. They will renew the ruined cities that have been laid desolate for generations. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Though Tamar lives out her life as a desolate woman, her story can bear righteous fruit in our lives. Because whether you identify with her story as someone who has been sinned against, or like me, it is not your story and you don't know what to do, listen to me. If you looked at that line in the text where David was angry and did nothing, and you shouted, do something, listen to me. As the sisters of the true son of David, we can act on behalf of those whose stories are like Tamar's. We can be the hands and feet that bring comfort to the desolate, we can be the arms that hold them. We can have the ears that receive their stories and hear them. We can be those who carry their stories to those who might bring about justice on their behalf. And when we do this, we look like Christ. Because the cross writes both the wrong we have done and the wrong that has been done to us. May we be a people of compassion and a people who seek justice for the vulnerable among us. And in so doing, might we 
be those who reap a harvest from a story such as this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this story is not edited out of the Bible. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who are willing to hear these stories from those among us who have them to tell. That we would help bear the weight of their shame and that we would point them toward the cross. Thank you, Father, that the true son of David was gentle and compassionate. That the true son of David is full of mercy and grace, and that the true Son of David lives to intercede for us. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.